0: Hello and welcome to this special edition of Biting Talk with me, William Sitwell, telegraph restaurant critic and food writer. Biting Talk is Britain's liveliest food and drink podcast. And on this edition, we'll look back at some of the show's highlights in this extraordinary year. And firstly, let me say a big thank you to our wonderful sponsor, Life Kitchens. More on them later. But now to the wonderful, amazing and gifted people who have taken the time to chat to me and to you over the course of the last Biting Talk season. And some of you might recall, we rebooted my beloved Biting Talk as a podcast back during the first lockdown. And back then, one of my guests was the Mail on Sunday restaurant critic Tom Parker Bowles. What, I wondered, was he most missing about not being able to eat out? Well, it's, it's
1: not... You know what I miss most of all? We're very lucky as restaurant critics to be able to go around the country and uh, find wonderful restaurants and, and write about them. But what I miss most of all is, is just, you know, being in the country and looking around all these closed pubs. I really miss just going to the pub for a, a pint with your friends. You, these things you take for granted. It's, it's not so much the food, although I miss lots of food, Claude Bossie in particular. Uh, but it's, it's not so much that. It's the idea of, of, the, of the ancient... Uh, joy of eating together of sitting down breaking bread sharing talking being social that's all very well being with our family and our, and our children and all the rest of it but I just miss you know should we go for dinner doesn't matter I'm not particularly interested in high art or you know tasting menus or any of that, I would take a, a rubbish pub, to be honest now, just to be able to sit down and, and eat together. This, this government have been uh, interesting. I say, uh, you know, it's no place, for, well, it's every place for politics now. We've never had a clue. They seem to have been winging it the whole way through this. Uh, that health fella Hancock, you know, I, I just can't watch him, totally
0: mad. Well, that's what a critic thinks. But what about the chefs? Well, I caught up with one of the nation's finest, and I asked Marcus Waring what he might end up doing if lockdown and regulations wrecked his business and he had to
2: throw in his chef's whites. I think farming would be one, but it wouldn't be me doing it. I think uh, uh, more book writing. I think it looking deeper into the world of food. Uh, I've, always wanted, I've always wanted to do the story of um, life post-lockdown for a TV documentary. So I'd push all those boundaries. Um, getting into a day-to-day normal job, uh, no, I, I probably wouldn't do that. I'm 50. Uh, I'm not 15. I don't need to go and drive a van or be a delivery boy or get a paper round. Uh, I'm not that hard up, William.
0: (laughs) Do those years, you know, when you were in your late teens and you were uh, working for your father packing spuds, do they feel like an eternity away?
2: No, when I've reflected over the last six months, I've reflected on an amazing 30 plus years in, in this industry. Um, the reason why I can sit here and sustain this at the moment is because of my father's work ethic, um, and that work ethic, that stacking those potatoes, packing them, his precision, his work ethic, and, and his hours he put in, is what. And, and this, one of the things my always my father always said was, "Look after your money, save your money, always plan for the future." And the people that are going to suffer early on are people that haven't really planned or put some money away personally and in their business. And that's something I've always done and had more more than one string to my bow. I've got lots of things I can fall back on if need be, but I don't want to leave the industry. I want to stay on it. I want to run restaurants. uh, And I've got, I think, another 10 plus years in me. I want to keep going.
0: Another 10 plus years in chef Marcus Waring, which is wonderful to hear. As Marcus suggests, owning a restaurant is one hell of a tough business. And if one man knows better than most, it's Tony Singh. His businesses have taken a battering over the years. But what has driven him on? And where did it all begin?
3: We come from a Punjabi household, a Sikh household, where uh, we talk about lunch at breakfast and then we'll talk about dinner at lunch. Dad's be a great cook, mum's a great cook. Always helped my gran out when we were younger, big family. So if you wanted something extra, if you helped in the kitchen, you got to lick the spoon. So since I left school, I started the YTS because I always wanted to cook because I enjoyed, I got so much pleasure from it. I'm not academic, I've got a bit of dyslexia. So when you were at school, basically, if you weren't good at your ESTRs, you were either thrown into work woodwork, metalwork or cooking, and uh, all the girls were in cooking, so I worked in the cooking. It was fantastic. And from then on, that pleasure and that passion just Grew. and then with the YTS got a chance to work in some great restaurants uh, went to college and there at Telford College it was the, the lectures that opened my eyes because I was working at a pub and I thought that was because it was all home cooked but then I went to college and they showed me classic French cooking and then the world of different food and possibilities which was great and I purposely stayed away from Indian food at that time because I didn't want to be uh, pigeonholed and now later on I discovered my heritage and everything and then When you had your own restaurant, you're lucky enough to blend both.
0: Tony Singh there on the magic recipe of blending a passion for food and his heritage. It was food heritage of a different kind that I chatted about with Sabrina Gale when she came on Biting Talk to discuss her Middle Eastern background as she published her latest book, Simply. But I asked her, if I'm to arm myself with ingredients so that I can genuinely cook simple, easy, everyday Persian food, What do I need to have in my store cupboard and fridge?
4: The truth is there are only really a handful of things that I may have that the person who has never cooked my kind of food has. Um, So we have all the basic curry spices like turmeric, cumin, cinnamon. That's kind of old hat because of people like Madda Jaffrey in our British uh, store cupboards. Apart from that, things I like to have, I love rose harissa. I'm absolutely obsessed with that um, because it's so useful as a chilli paste. It's completely North African, not Persian or Middle Eastern. Um, preserved lemons uh, or dried limes, which is the Persian version of preserved lemons, which are actually dr- little dried limes. I mean, pul bebe, Turkish chili flake, or also known as Aleppo pepper. Apart from that, you've already got everything. You, tahini, maybe, those kind of things.
0: Tahini, tahini, I'm always running short of tahini. Now, if there's one thing my next guest, Janara Contalda, doesn't run out of, it's conversation. The legendary Italian chef got very chatty with me when it came to the subject of Parmesan. But here he is being a little bit more precise about his old friend, the wonderful Antonio Coluccio, who died a few years ago.
5: I missed him quite a lot. I do miss him, especially this time of the year when it's the mushroom season. and We used to go mushroom picking together and uh, do miss him. But let me tell her I met Antonio. Antonio came in England and uh, he married Priscilla Conneran and uh, he had the same passions of me collecting mushrooms. And one day out of the blue, I was uh, reading this magazine, this figure of Antonio, all these massive mushrooms in his hands. And he also was serving them in in restaurant. So I find out that the restaurant was in New Street and the restaurant's called New Street. So I pick up a massive basket of mushrooms mushroom, which I collected and I brought it to him as a present. And he loved it so much. Uh, I said, thank you. He said to me, well, if you have some more, bring them along and I'll buy off you. I said, no, you can have it, but I don't sell it. And from there, you know, he invited me for, for dinner. and We start to talk. And uh, I was telling him what I was doing. He said, uh, I felt like I have a job with him. I was a little bit confusing, uh, but in the end, it took him about two, three months. And accept uh, that that job. Uh, so I was in the kitchen, uh, I was an assistant then, and then I was the chef. Uh, and then slowly, 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 you know, we really, we, we become a friend more than a boss as uh, somebody worked with him.
0: Gennaro Contaldo on Antonio Carluccio. One of Carluccio's friends and collaborators was Sir Terence Conran. This titan of a man, a creator of restaurants, of retail, and a man of huge influence died in early September. So I asked his one-time friend, sometime colleague, and frequent enemy, Stephen Bailey, to talk to me about this complex character.
6: I met him first when I was editing uh, the the 1977 Jubilee edition of the Architectural Review. This this Jubilee edition of the Architectural Review was all about life in Britain, you know, um, post-1951. And I'd always wanted, and and Terence Conran, I think, was an essential part of that. Very few people have made a better contribution to cultural material culture in Britain than Terence. So I went to meet him for the Architectural Review. That was the first time I met him. Then subsequently, about two years later, I was writing a book about design, which was unbelievably—it was one of the uh, one of the first books on the subject, which took the which which, which we, there were books about the Bauhaus and William Morris before, but very few books about everyday design. Terence sort of discovered what I was doing, plucked me from the obscurity of the provincial museum where I where, provincial university where I worked, and um, you know with his with his sort of typical thing, come come hither finger says you know come and join me. So I had a. A sort of, I had a sort of, you know, like a Robert Frost poem. You know, there are two paths in the forest. I could either stay in my academic career, which probably wasn't very promising, or I could go and join Terence to help him, as he said, promote design. And the way we, the way we promoted design, we took over a space in the Victorian Albert Museum, uh, which became known as the Boiler House Project. in the 80s, we put on 26 different exhibitions about design there. Um, which helped make design the popular subject is today. And then that was that all led up to the opening of the uh, Design Museum in Butler's Wharf in 1989, of which I was the founding director. And that's it really. And since then, Terence and I have written a couple of books together, and we've been, he's been simultaneously my patron, my mentor, my friend, my antagonist, and you know, my friend again, and latterly an antagonist. But he was a remarkable man. As I say, very few people have made, made a more positive contribution to material life in this country
0: in recent years. Stephen Bailey on Terence Conrad. One man who I know misses, Sir Terence, is a recent business partner, Claude Bossy. French chef Bossy is now at the helm of the fabulous Bibendum, first opened by Conran with Simon Hopkinson in 1987. I talked to Claude and first asked him if the memory of him arriving in the UK with very little understanding of English was still fresh in his memory.
7: You know what? I can remember like it was yesterday. It was November 97 in Ladlow. Arriving arrived in the train at six o'clock, six o'clock pitch black. The manager was due to come to get me, was late. And I said to myself, just coming from Paris, I said to myself, what do I'm, what I'm doing here? I said, if the manager or the guy is due to come to pick me up, he's not there when the train comes back on the other side, I'm going home. (laughs) (laughs) And he he, he was, there he was in this little rover. He came to pick me up. Little Spanish guy who was speaking French and was very good with me. And I arrived to this beautiful little hotel, Country House Hotel where I was still at the time, side veg on every main course and things like this. And I started as a sous-chef and after a few months. They offered me the head chef position. And we started doing our own thing. And I, had, I was lucky to have owners who believe in me, where we used to have this customer who used to come to the hotel and asking for a side veg. I will always remember one of the few checks I have, one of the starters was a glass of oranges. <laughs> <laughs> and I say, uh, a glass of oranges. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we yeah. deal with that. That was a starter, you know, this. used to do melon fan of melon and raspberries in December and things like this. I mean, Once this sounds much...
0: like the 1970s, but it was, it was only, <laughs> Yes, late like 90s. To... Ah, how we forget how rapidly and brilliantly the food scene in this country has changed. Now, well, in normal times, at least, we have access to every possible type of food at every conceivable time of day, But one cuisine that always has a place in the nation's heart consistently is Indian food. And a favorite Indian chef of mine is Andy Varma. When he came on Biting Talk, I asked him if there was a special ingredient that he thought could make any dish sing.
8: When you cook with love (laughs) and you cook with passion, you can follow any recipe, but then when you don't follow recipes and you just chuck things in with love, it's the best. And uh, each hand, actually, you have um, slow cooking. You have to first input equals output. So you have to have the best leg of lamb. So the pieces, which is called a boti, a, a piece of lamb, is is uh, locally bought from the local butcher and then uh you know you you then marinate that as first step and then you actually add your um onions your ginger again fresh ginger you don't need to get a ginger paste uh which has vinegar and it can take the taste somewhere else just get pure ginger grated uh, really fresh garlic and puree all of that yourself and then start the process with layering so uh Indian cuisine is very complex, as you know uh, and uh if you do that with love and you 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 inculcate the flavors in the in the method that uh is required, so you can't for for example throw cumin seeds uh, at the end or in the middle. You have to temper the cumin seeds to open the flavors of the cumin. Uh, and that's done uh, at the beginning with the, when you actually are uh, heating the oil. So all this makes a really lovely curry. And I'm, I'm, I'm sure when you come and eat it, you'll, uh, you'll say, oh my God, Andy, that was like.
0: <laughs> so that's interesting. So your initial answer is love and passion, but of course what it is, is years and years of experience, the finest ingredients, unbelievable culinary know-how, and an acute understanding of how spices work so i think we'll leave that to the experts Andy Varma there on love and dal now my next guest used to cook dull at her restaurant in reading for the locals but lockdown and COVID restrictions rendered her tiny establishment uneconomical so she decided to shut clay's kitchen and do a takeaway but not any old takeaway a national delivery service here is nandana sayamala's incredible story of sending curry to cornwall and Sog to Scotland.
8: Some of them just thought it was foolish. Yeah, I can understand from their point of view, we were nobody compared to everybody else in the market. No one else knows uh, about us outside Reading. Hardly, I think even half of Reading doesn't even know we exist. But we knew we had, what we had in our hands was good. We knew we cook great food. We knew and we thought we'll give it a try. We made few mistakes in the beginning, like a uh, few of our past, uh, packages were lost and uh, they were not delivered on time. But luckily with APC, we found someone that works well with us.
0: So what's the furthest that you've sent a curry to so far?
8: Uh, I think we've recently sent one to an aristocracy family in Scotland.
0: <laughs> <laughs> that is amazing. Nandana Sayamala with possibly my favourite Biting Talk story of the year. Here's Justine Murphy, cook and recipe writer, a woman who's used food to completely and beautifully change her life.
4: I think it's 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 an interesting story to be able to share because it's, you know, the very thing that was, uh, or I guess the very people, it was good food and good people is where I am now. And that's been the heart of what My Muy Bueno is all about, what the cookbook's all about, and the striving to chase my happiness and create an amazing life for myself. Um, after such an upbringing and a childhood and finally kind of uh the things that happened to me in my childhood kind of followed me into my uh 20s and, you know, very isolated, very much in the hands of the wrong people for a very long time until I kind of said enough, enough. I'm going to go and uh, uh, I once chased my happiness. By that time, I'd kind of developed eating disorders off the back of the things that had happened to me, and food played a really negative part in my life. And only when I started to change my life, chase my happiness choose who I allowed into my life to protect myself and to make my own world, I guess, um, that everything started to really change. And then the very things that started to heal me and and my happiness started to grow and, uh, you know, were were the very good people coming into my life and from that good food and the uh, ignited the passion for food and cooking and the joy it gives people, the joy it was giving me and how very um, day and night it was from what... I'd experienced in my childhood and more. And
0: from one fearless woman to another. As she published her book On All Fronts, I spoke to war correspondent Clarissa Ward about eating while reporting in a war zone.
5: You know, honestly, one of the first things I tell young people when they're like, what should I really want to do this job? How do I do it? You know, what do I need in order to be able to do it? And I say to them, look, if you're a picky eater, go home. You're not going to last, right? Because you cannot be a picky eater and do this job. You have to be willing to eat literally anything that is put in front of you, partly for survival and partly for politeness and kind of, you know, joining in people's cultures, which is a really big part of the job. I now am very militant about packing some food with me because there are occasions where you'll be on an assignment and it's balls to the wool, and you don't have time to stop anywhere and you don't know where you can stop and eat something that's not gonna make you sick. And so I find there's like certain staples you pack with you on any trip and that will help you get through it.
0: War reporter Clarissa Ward. Fussy eaters need not apply. I wonder how my next guest would fare in a war zone. In November, sleek and elegant Guardian restaurant critic Grace Dent came on the show to talk about her wonderful new book, Hungry, a gorgeous, delicious memoir. Her battleground was growing up in the north of England in the 1970s and breaking into the impossibly posh magazine scene in the 1990s. But first, I asked her the question everyone asks me. How on earth do you become a food critic?
9: Uh, My simple answer is that you need to be uh, a proven, reliable, entertaining writer first who has proven that they can keep on kind of churning out copy that will make people come back again and again. It's almost like you've got your little soapbox and you stand on it each week at the same place. You know what it's like. And you just have to be entertaining. I think that... uh, And I I think that, I mean, I loved restaurants. I definitely, as I say in the book, I ate ate out around London for 25 years. I wanted desperately to be uh, that person who, I wanted to write down the thing that I would have said in the office on a Monday morning anyway, when someone said, what was that place like? And then I just began and began my little rant about what it was like. I think that to do that, Um, Nash to do that uh, as a job you you just really need to convince the right person to give you a go nobody's ever going to say this job is available forever would you like to apply for it officially what I find is with restaurant critic jobs is that you're kind of in the vicinity anyway doing something else and uh, making a bit of a name for yourself and then uh, and then somebody dies or goes sick.
0: The relentlessly cool and classy Grace Dent bringing us almost to the end of this special Best of 2020 Biting Talk. But regular listeners will know that no Biting Talk can end without the appearance of one man, Farhad Haydari. Here's the Biting Talk mixologist on fiery form as ever with an El Diablo.
10: Good riddance to 2020, William. <laughs> what are you thinking? What's What does the
0: future have? For cocktails, which, of course, I know is the only thing you ever think about. What does 2021 look like in your crystal glass of cocktails? Uh,
10: if looking at it through rose-colored glasses, you know, a rosé, uh, rose, uh, let's go with a Mirabal. Let's uh, let let let's let's live the rosé o'clock, uh, 365, 24-7 for the next year, because uh, we're all going to need it.
0: OK, we're just going to drink pink wine all year. OK, you'll be out of a job. For the last time, Farhad, give us... A cocktail to uh, let our hearts sing. Over to you.
10: Our cocktail today is called the El Diablo. It's got a very, very Latino flavor to it. It's, uh goes well, it starts with a Collins glass. And we're going to uh, shake three principal ingredients in our shaker. We're going to go with 45 milliliters of tequila, a patron would do fantastically, 15 milliliters of cassis. <laughs> And 22 milliliters of fresh lime juice. All of that goes into our shaker, shake, strain, fine strain that into our Collins glass. And then we top that with 60 milliliters of Fever Tree uh, premium ginger beer. And we give it a sort of a garnish of a wedge lime. And boom, that's our cocktail. It's called the El Diablo. It's refreshing, it's effervescent, and it'll set us up for the holidays, which will be probably shoulder-sagging and uh, and miserable if you're around the, the, the old kitchen table with uh, all the relatives whose uh, very existence you deny for every other day of the year.
0: Thanks to Farhad. Thanks also to Life Kitchens, who design kitchens you really want to live in down at their funky showroom under the arches by Waterloo. Now, thanks to everyone who's come on the podcast this year, and thank you so much for listening. While I could do it without you, it wouldn't be much fun. But I definitely couldn't do it without Front Ear Productions. My thanks to them. And to you all, a very happy, peaceful and productive New Year. I'm William Sitwell, and that was the best of 2020's Biting Talk. I'll see you all soon.